Hey folks, did you know that Card Player Poker offers free legal poker games with no deposit required where the players can win real money? The site is giving away six summer poker prize packages that include a $565 buy-in to the $1 million guaranteed live event in Las Vegas starting June 2nd, 2017, along with $500 for travel expenses. Go to poker.cardplayer.com for your chance to win. Again, that's poker.cardplayer.com for your shot to win a free poker package into a $1 million guaranteed live poker tournament this summer. Poker Stories is an audio series that features casual interviews with some of the game's best players and personalities. Each episode highlights a well-known figure in the poker world and dives deep into their favorite tales both on and off the felt. That's right, it's time for another edition of Poker Stories brought to you by Card Player, the Poker Authority, hosted by me, Julio Rodriguez. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the podcast so far. If you are listening to this on YouTube or on the Card Player website, then make sure you subscribe so you can get the latest episode automatically. If you like the show, then please rate it and leave a review. We're going to give away some free digital subscriptions to the magazine each month, so if you'd like to be eligible to win, Leave a nice review and then email pokerstories at cardplayer.com with your username. Again, that's pokerstories at cardplayer.com. Leave a review, leave us your username, and you'll have a shot to win that subscription. I'm very excited about today's episode featuring the one and only Mike Sexton. Mike is fresh off of a big score at the LA Poker Classic where he took fourth place for $300,000. The conversation that you are about to hear actually took place in Las Vegas just an hour before Mike got on the road to head to LA in the first place. So we didn't actually get to talk about the most recent LAPC, but we did get into his WPT win in Montreal last year, uh, his WSOP bracelet, his job as commentator for the World Poker Tour, and some classic stories about his first years as a poker pro. I really don't need to sell you on Mike Sexton, let's go. Mike, great having you here. Great having you here before you hit the road for L.A. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. It's good to be back at Card Player. So this is what, your 100th trip out to L.A. right now? Uh, probably. At least something like that, probably. The first one out there in 1985, I believe it was. Do you usually uh, fly or drive, make the drive? Usually I drive to L.A. because I, you have to have a car when you're in L.A. Mm -hmm. So I drive even though you stay in the casino most of the time, but I like to play golf some over there, too, so. I like to drive and take my clubs and whatnot. Yeah, what do you what do you uh, what are you shooting these days? You still still scratch a, golfer? A, no, no, I'm a bad golfer. I'm a bogey golfer. I mean, At I know, best, and that's not from the back tees either. <laughs> well, you're not playing from the reds, I hope. <laughs> I, yeah, usually I do play from the reds, honestly. Yeah. 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 How's uh? I'm not how, ashamed to go up there at all. You uh? How's the endurance <laughs> these days? You're putting uh, in any marathon 36 hole sessions anymore? No, no, not too many of those. Once in a while, if you get stuck, you have to go back out for another nine, but. <laughs> it's uh, it's not so bad. All right, that's good to hear. Uh, let's start at the beginning, because um, I looked up Shelby, Indiana, and it's Shelbyville actually. Oh, Shelbyville. Okay, yeah. Wikipedia got it wrong then. Cause, yeah, yeah. Because Shelby has five hundred thirty nine people as of two thousand ten. No, no. So. <laughs> Shelbyville. It's thirty miles south of Indianapolis, actually. Okay, tell me what was what was it like growing up in Shelbyville? Well, I was only there till I was like four years old. <laughs> okay. So then we moved to Dayton, Ohio, from there, mm -hmm. and. Uh, so I actually grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, and uh, 
just you and your, your brother Tom or any other Yeah, me and my or... brother Tom and my mom. My parents got divorced, and my mom just took us to Dayton, Ohio, and that's where we ended up growing up. And what did you get into as a kid? I know you were a gymnast, but uh, what was the younger days Yeah, like? as a kid, you know, we played all the sports, Little League Baseball and whatnot, but uh, the Dayton YMCA was our savior back in those days, actually. We went every Saturday morning as a kid and then found tumbling classes and signed up on Tuesday and Thursday nights, and we were real good at it, pretty good at it, and then we joined the Y tumbling team and got into gymnastics from there. So ever since we were just wee high, eight eight years old, nine years old, we've been doing somersaults and flips. So it kept you out of trouble? Uh, pretty much. You know, we didn't get in much trouble, actually. Not too bad, anyway, for kids. <laughs> uh, men's gymnastics, what was that like back then? Uh, rings and uh, palm uh, horse? You know, and... when we grew up in our state, in Ohio, in our high school, gymnastics was a varsity sport that you could get a letter at. You know, that doesn't happen anywhere today. Now it's all club gymnastics now. But back then... There was no gymnastics you know, in my high school. Every school in our league had a team. A lot of schools in Dayton had them. Mm-hmm. Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland. We had a state championship, and it was a big deal back then. So, you know, very lucky for us that our high school you know, had a gymnastics program because that's the reason both my brother and I got full scholarships to college. So mm-hmm. had they not had that, you know, we w- that would have never happened for us. So, What was your what was your expertise? Uh, my best event back then was trampoline. It was still an event in the NCAA <laughs> back then. My senior year in college was the last year that trampoline was an official event in you NCAA gymnastics. It. And then uh, they took it out and went to the six Olympic events, and I was so mad about it. I like boycotted gymnastics for like twenty years. You could probably get me. away with telling people that you were so good at it, they just decided to cancel the event altogether. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the case though, but uh, <laughs> it was my best event, and uh, you know I was pretty decent at floor exercise and mm-hmm. vaulting and parallel bars. But uh, you know I was a decent collegiate gymnast. I won the high score award every year at Ohio State. Was the most valuable gymnast my senior year, but at that time. Ohio State was at the bottom of the Big Ten. We weren't very good in gymnastics, really? honestly. And now they compete for a national title every year. So, you know, I'm very proud of the program and the way it's grown and how good it is now. Uh, but back then, honestly, we weren't that good. And that's the reason my brother didn't go to Ohio State, in fact. He chose to go to Oklahoma. Instead, we were in, wow, the, same, we were in the same grade. And he had a phenomenal career there. He became the first All-American gymnast at Oklahoma. And uh, he just had a great career. Uh, wait, so you guys are in the same grade, so you guys are... We're in the same grade. My mother held him back in eighth grade, mm-hmm. and she just wasn't pleased with him or something. Well, so I don't he think he didn't flunk or anything. And <laughs> so he and I are a year apart, but... Uh, you grew up together. So from then yeah. on, we, yeah, we grew up together. We were real close. Yeah, so I made sure to write down in my notes, the Ohio State University, because I know how... No, it's the. It wasn't even the when I went there, but it's the now, so... <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, public re- recreation is what they said you got your degree in. Yeah, well, so what you know, is I started out in that? business, then I went to teaching, then I went, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I'm, I was on a full scholarship, and because of that, because I wasn't paying to go to college, you know, mm-hmm. I just didn't put a lot of effort in the classes, honestly, and I'm embarrassed about it now, and I'm not proud of it. But, you know, I wouldn't even sign up for a course back in those days if you had attendance was required, you know. Oh, wow. Like those big auditorium <laughs> classes, nobody knew if you were there or not, you know. You like the ones you can and, show up you know, for And all I had to do was just go to practice from 4 to 6 every day. Mm-hmm. And, and other than that, you know, I slept in a lot of the mornings. And, you know, it, it, I'm, it's not anything to be proud of, of course. So This was the, uh, it was actually what, the 60s, way right? Out. Yeah, back in the 60s, yeah. So what was what was life like for a varsity athlete on, on a university back then? I, mean, I assume it, it isn't quite like today. 
Uh, it's pretty much like today. Yeah. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Wearing a varsity old special jacket. Special treatment? You know, and uh, yeah, now, you know, you don't get special treatment really as a, you know, an average gymnast, so to speak. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not like you're the quarterback of the football team. Right, right. And uh, so, but, uh, you know, I was, it was, you know, I got just as much as the quarterback of the football team in terms of, you know, room and board, expenses, meal money, tuition, everything, the work. So, you know, it was it was good in that regard. I remember I got under your skin a little bit in 2007 uh, during the Florida-Ohio State championship game. Oh, boy. The Greg Oden years. You have, to, you have to bring that one up. We ran the opening kickoff back for a touchdown. Oh, no, that was the football championship. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm talking about football, yeah. <laughs> that was, was like, I yeah. don't know if it was about 2007, but I know one thing. I, Jeez, I hated the SEC back in those days, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> well, you got Until our we coach we beat Alabama now. a couple of years ago then, and won our own national championship back. So you took my coach, Urban Meyer, and yeah. it's working out Well, for it was you. the smartest thing we did was get him, I can tell you. He's Better great. than Trestle, I guess. Yeah, he, <laughs> Trestle was good too, though. But uh, he's not Urban Meyer. Exactly. All right, so uh, you get out of college, uh, public recreation degree, but then you join the Army as a paratrooper. I mean, that's got to be intense. Tell me what that was it like. It did, you know. Now this is back in the Vietnam War. You have to remember that, you know. And you had a draft, and you know, so you were drafted. There was draft back then. I was not drafted. Okay. You, they had a lottery, and if your birthday fell at an early date, you got drafted. And if it was a late date, and my, I had a big high drawing, you mm-hmm. know, and nobody could believe I was signing up for the army. They said, "Are you out of your mind? You're going to go to Vietnam, especially if you're a paratrooper." I said, "Well, if I do, I do," you know, but. I'd done flips all my life. I always wanted to jump out of planes. It just seemed like the fun thing to do. And I really believe that everybody should have served mm-hmm. in the armed forces back then. I, and I still believe it today, incidentally. And it always bothered me that kids could get out of, you know, going to the service, to, you know, because they got married or because they're going to college or their family had money or something, you know. And I never thought that was fair. Circumstance, yeah. I think everybody, as soon as they get out of high school, should serve two years. I don't care if you're physically unable. You can sit at a desk and do something. You can volunteer. Uh, I believe there's some countries you know, overseas and, that do that. And, yeah, and there are. And, you know, honestly, I think we should do it as well. But uh, but in any case, uh, I wanted to join the Army, and so I did, and, and really loved it, honestly. And, you know, uh, I, I love jumping out of planes. I love being in the 82nd Airborne training Division. Like? You know, training was great. You know, it was for me, first you go to basic, and then you go to AIT, and then you go to jump school. Mm-hmm. And I went to jump school down in Fort Benning, Georgia, and it was in August. It was so hot, and, you know, you never forget it when you go there. But you run so much. Now, I've never been a great runner, you know. You always get side aches if you run a lot, but, boy, you ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. <laughs> so I was glad to get out of there. You're in there for three weeks. And uh, so, but it was fun. I really, really did like it. Did you and, see Band of Brothers? And uh, <laughs> Was it anything like, uh, what was it, the uh, the David Schwimmer character, just tell, ru- making him run up the hill back oh, and forth? Yeah, I mean, you know. Curry, you, they called it, I think. You never forget your drill instructor when you're in the, you know, in the Army and all. Mm-hmm. And, and it's pretty much like, uh, you know, in the movies, like you see, they're always screaming and hollering, and, and you don't forget them. But uh, then I got assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division, and looking back on it now, I realize how lucky – I was because the 82nd had just come back from their second tour of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So I never left Fort Bragg when I was in the Army. Oh, man. You know, so looking back now, you know, I realized how lucky I was. But back then, I thought, well, if I go, I go, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you didn't think much about it. But now I realize it was a blessing. I didn't have to go to Vietnam. Yeah. Talk about luck, for sure. Um, so you learned poker as a teenager, though. I did. Yeah, when I was 13 years old, my neighbor taught me how to play, Danny Robinson, and 
He went on legendary a, stud player. Legendary. So I mean, many think he's the greatest seven card stud player ever. And he and Chip Reese partnered up. They're both from the Dayton area. And uh, Danny lived right behind me. We were best friends growing up. Now he was two years older than I was. And uh, but when he taught me how to play at thirteen, he kept me broke. He gave me his paper out. <laughs> And then he'd meet me on the back porch after I delivered papers all week. Back then, you collected on Friday nights from your customers. Mm-hmm. So I'd collect from my customer, and there'd be Danny shuffling the cars on my back porch, and he'd beat me out of my money every week, you know. And I, I never did wake up that he was way better than I was. So, <laughs> but anyway, once I got rid of Danny and went off to college on my own and started playing cards, whether it was gin rummy or uh, hearts or poker or whatever it was, I realized I was way better than these guys in the dorm. <laughs> you just weren't good at game selection, you know. So either. yeah, so. You know, who knew that Danny was one of the best in the world? You know, I didn't know it at the time. And, of course, him and Chip came out to Las Vegas and became legends out here. And, uh, you know, and I stayed in North Carolina when I got out of the Army and took a job as a sales rep for a military sales company where we sold to the PXs and commissaries in North and South Carolina, got married. What were you selling? Uh, we still just sold various products to the PX and the commissary, mm-hmm. you know, Alberta Culver products and other various products. And, uh, Are you good at it? So I was okay at it, but the problem was- I only ask because you're a natural salesman on camera. Yeah. I mean, I was good at it, but the problem was I was finding home poker games to play at night. <laughs> and I'd have to quit the poker game about one in the morning to drive to Camp Lejeune or drive somewhere where you might sell something and make some money when I knew I could make money in that poker game. So after three and a half years, probably playing too much poker, I ended up getting a divorce and- I was single again. I thought, you know, I'm just going to quit this job and just play poker for a living. I just love playing in the games, and I had a game every day I could play in and ran yeah. a game, and you know, I could run a game. So, and at this point, you still hadn't been out to Vegas, and no, so I hadn't been to Vegas. So I started playing uh, in the poker games. I just quit my job and said, you know, if I get broke, you know, I can always go back and get another job. And for literally over 20 years. You know, I never had another paycheck. My next, well, my well, next paycheck came from Card Player Magazine, a hundred dollars <laughs> for writing the columns for them twice a month. So uh, no. <laughs> that wasn't recent, guys. Yeah, we've, no. we've upped the rates a little uh, bit. This was nineteen ninety six. I can tell you. <laughs> but uh, but I want to go back to those those early games in North okay. Carolina. People, yeah. what were the games like? What games were you playing? The games what were, were the great. Stakes? And in most games that we played, we had a rule: if you could explain it, you could deal it. <laughs> so because of that, you played a wide variety of games, you know, wild card games and crisscross and all cards down and replace a card and, you know, just about any games that you can think of. But uh, uh, the biggest game we played, believe it or not, in, in the best poker game I've ever been to to this day was seven card stud, high-low split, mm-hmm. declare with chips, what is declare and with all chips? seven cards are all down. What? <laughs> you never see a card. And it's a forced bet. It was... 10, 20, 30, 40, force bet, you had to better get out. So, in other words, it just rotated around the table. No checking. You know, so there's no checking. You better, you folded your hand. Man. Okay, and now the next time the next guy was up, he bet and folded his hand. Now, at the end, the guy who bet last declares first. It was a verbal declare. So, okay. you verbally declared whether you're going high or you're going low or you're going both ways. Now, if you went both ways, you had to win both ways. Oh, was there a qualifier? As, so, like now there's no qualifier. Okay. But, you know. If you had a wheel, for example, and I went both ways and I had a wheel and a flush, I would lose the pot to you because you have to win both ways to scoop right. the pot. If you get counterfeited, you lose. But the key to the game is getting yourself in position. You know, like you might raise and take the last bet on 6th Street 
So the other guy has to bet first on 7th Street, for example, you know, Got kind of thing. It. So there's some strategy involved. Even though you can't see any cards, <laughs> you get a pretty good feel of which direction guys are going, and I just happen to have a better feel than most in that game. But uh, it, was, it was unusual, and I'll tell you, it was an amazing game. We played at Nashville, North Carolina. I drove 100 miles two days a week to play in this game on Tuesday and Thursday. If you didn't get there by noon, you could you didn't get a seat in the game. It was full of farmers and tobacco farmers and these oh, guys man. played in the game. It was phenomenal, actually. <laughs> Do you remember really any particularly uh, brutal losses? It was really a lot or of fun. brutal sessions or no, great sessions? No, not really. You know, I, I really won all the time in the game. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and, and uh, so it was just great. You know, and were you surprised they kept? They you know, kept sadly, even you back? though I I'd win at poker five days a week, six days a week, then on the weekend I'd bet the sports, and by Monday I'd owe the bookmaker. So, you know. It, no matter how much I won during the week, I blew it on the weekends. That's how dumb I was back then. Of course. Were you betting on your alma mater? Or? And uh, yeah, I bet on them usually, but <laughs> I bet on everybody. It didn't matter who I bet on. But it's pathetic when I think how you know much I've lost in my life betting on sports. It's really it is a, nothing I'm proud of. But I only bring it up just so other people don't fall in the same trap I did. Well, it's a common trap for a lot of poker players. You know, there's no, it's a, a reason a the trap, sports yeah. book is next to the poker room in most casinos. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean most. Poker players, especially high-stakes poker players, have gamble in them, you know, and they're going to bet on sports or they're going to bet on the golf course or, you know, and whatever they do, they're going to bet high. Now, a mm. uh, number of players, especially back in the old days, not so many nowadays, used to go off in the pit quite a bit, Yeah, you know, as well. And I never did that. And, you know, and then obviously some do drugs and some go to titty bars and, you know, some of them, there's a lot of vices you there's can There's a lot of vices, especially in this if city. If you allow yourself. And, uh, you know, Bobby Baldwin told me a long time ago, he said, uh, you know, if you're really good at poker and you live in Las Vegas and you're really good, he said, you might can survive if you have one bad habit. He <laughs> said, if you have more than one, he said, you don't have any chance to survive. So, you know, I had one and it wasn't enough to keep me to surviving. But, I mean, I did survive. <laughs> but but uh, one one bad one is all you need to just stay broke. Are you uh, – are you- have you quit cold turkey, or do you still No, no, I mean, no, no, well, quit cold turkey. But, <laughs> I'm about to say, a gambler's a gambler. But, you know, yeah. You know, but I used to bet way more than I had. And then when I got a hold of big money, then I really started betting real big. And then I went through that. And, and uh, so now I've calmed down a little bit. But still, it's like my favorite thing to do. I mean, if you're sitting at home watching the game, how do you possibly not have a bet on it, you know? Well, I just want to go back to your mindset. Like, what? Uh, yeah. you know, because you're a card player, you're successful, you know the, the numbers there. Yeah. And you know the numbers when it comes to sports betting, too. Yeah. No, so, it's true. So what I mean, drives people? You know, I was never... You know, what drives people is a couple things. A, it's fun to do. Yeah, there's a rush. And B, if you win, you know, you feel like, you, you know, winning is just so great. You know, you think you're so smart and you see your bookmaker on Mondays. Mm-hmm. And then even if you're broke, it's also a good way, you know, it's a good time to bet because, at least in my case it was, because even if I lost an old bookmakers, you know, none of them would track me down or put send Guido after me or nothing because yeah. they knew I could make money and pay them back. So, <laughs> you know, they, they never worried about me. You know, paying them. Keep them in action. They'll eventually get it back. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I could always get credit with the bookmakers. and and, uh, So you didn't didn't come to Vegas fleeing North Carolina bookmakers or anything like that? No, no, no. No, not at all. Because I read, okay, so you I came here to try to win some money to pay them back sometime. (laughs) (laughs) So you became a poker pro in in the mid-70s, something like that? Yeah, but 1977 officially is when I quit my job, I think. Okay. So, but you didn't come to the series for almost a decade, right? No, I didn't. you know, I came out and visited Chip and Danny because Danny was my best friend. Him and Chip were living together in Las Vegas. Had this luxurious bachelor pay. He said, you got to come out, you got to come out, you got to come out. So I finally came out to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. 
And I stayed at their house, and I was so wild by this. You know, now these guys had come out in the summer of 74, I believe it was. Might have been 73, with a $1,000 bankroll between them. That's wow. all they had. They took $1,000 in a four-month time, turned into a million dollars. Now we're talking about 1974. Think about it. And it's amazing, you know, what legends they became back in the day. Now, back then, casino owners played in the real high-stakes games, and they started out just playing in 15, 37-card stud. Man. Around the clock. Chip would play 12 hours. Danny would play 12 hours. They'd tag team each other. One would go home and sleep. The other yeah. one would play. But they stayed in action 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then Chip finally went down to the Flamingo where they were playing the big game, which was two and 400 back in those days with Johnny Moss and those guys. And he watched it. And they were playing high-low split. And he went back to Danny. He said, Danny, he said, I can beat these guys. You know, he said, I'm watching them. They just don't play that good. So they took a big chunk of their bankroll. And fired it in that game, and then they never looked back after that. And, and uh, so that's th- how that's how these gamblers are made. I mean, these guys they have the story. Right? Who was it? Was it Freddie Deeb who like turned five hundred bucks into a hundred thousand in one day at a, in a card room doing the same thing? You know, just running it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freddie Deeb, Sam Grizzle. There's certain guys in history mm-hmm. that are not afraid to parlay it up. They come in with nothing, and but as soon as they get enough for the buy-in for the next highest game, they jump in that game. Yeah. And then when they get the buy-in for the next side, they jump in that game. So by nightfall, they're, they, <laughs> they're in the biggest they, game in the room. They're either going to be broke or they're going to have a big bankroll. So, uh, yeah. you know, that, that's the way to do it. But, yeah, so I came out here in Vegas and played some poker out here. But back in those days, uh, I fell in love with uh, coaching Little League Baseball. Okay. And that was my passion. Now, back then, the World Series was in April and May. It wasn't in the summertime like it is Talk now. About the, the actual Little League World Series. Yeah, yeah I mean, Little League, when – you know, in North Carolina where I coached, mm-hmm. uh, I'd met my second wife, and she had a nine-year-old you know, when I met her, and so I raised him up. But, you know, he was playing little league baseball when I mm-hmm. met I fell in love with it. And when he aged out, I wanted to get my own team. So I got my <laughs> team, and I just loved it. And, you know, because little league season, you start practicing in April, yeah. and the season starts in May, and it's the same time as the World Series. So I had to make a choice, and I never came out to the World Series. and. Finally, it wasn't until 1984 that I came out to the World Series for the first time, even wow. though I've been coming to Vegas since 78. And I said, you know, I've been dying to come out to the World Series. Now, back then, you only had one event every other day. That's all you could play. They played down yeah. to the final table on day one. Mm-hmm. Day two was the final table. No other tournament was going on. You had to play cash games back then. Exactly. And then the next day was a tournament. So if you came out for a week, you could only play in three events. So I played. And I came out for a week. I played three events. I made two final tables, and I said, you know, I'm never missing another World Series. And to this day, I've never missed another one. Really? Yeah. Well, that's the way to do it. And so then I moved to Las Vegas in January of 85. Because of the success I had at that World Series, and I often wonder, boy, if I'd have flopped out and never done it, I wonder if I'd still been in North Carolina today. Who knows? Yeah, that, every poker player's got that story, that one thing that went right for them at the crucial moment where it was a turning point, you know? Uh, but I want to get back to, to this Chip because I heard a story, and I want to ask if it's true, that Chip didn't understand how much water bills should cost, and he left his hose running all, all day. Yeah, he might have done that. It more sounds like more like Stu Hunger to me. Where, oh, really? Where Stu, even when he had a million dollars, they turned his lights off because he wouldn't pay the electric bill sometimes. You know, I mean, he was that, you know, and, and poker players are like that, you know. and, and uh, uh, but But Chip... You know, I'm surprised because Chip, is, he was so much smarter than everybody else in life and in poker and mm-hmm. in cards and in every gambling of any kind. So that would surprise me about Chip, but but probably not really. 
Is Chip the greatest in your mind, or was he? Yeah, I think he was the greatest all-around player. Mm-hmm. You know, he had the best demeanor at a poker table I've ever seen of anybody. I mean, never one time did I ever see him get mad at a dealer, raise his voice at another player, criticize another player on how they played, never complained about losing the pot, never moaned, groaned, threw cards at the dealer, none of that stuff. I mean, he was just calm, cool, and collected. You know, and I said to him once, because he always played in the highest poker games for 30 years. Now think about it. Not once in 30 years' time that I ever saw Chip was he ever in the second highest poker game in the room. <laughs> it was always the biggest game yeah. in the room. Now think about that. Even Doyle's played in the second highest game sometimes. But Chip never played but in the biggest game, whatever it was. And that that's an amazing feat when you think about and it. And to but, go 30 years, because you see people yeah. who were playing five years ago that can't get into that room today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I said to Chip once, I said, Chip, I said, what separates you? You know, why are you better than these other guys that you play mm-hmm. with all the time? He said, Mike, he said, I'll tell you. He said, when these other guys are on their A game, he said, I don't play any better. He said, we all play about the same. Mm-hmm. He said, the difference is they have a C and a D game. He said, I don't. In other words, they steam. You know, when they're stuck and they're steaming, you know, and, uh, you know, they start playing bad. And, you know, even the best players in the world, when they're steaming, are the best players to play with, you know, on occasion. <laughs> you know, believe it or not, when they're stuck and steaming. So, because, uh, you know, there's plenty of action and, and uh, Chip recognized that. And well, what about you back in those days, as a, your, your your grinding days? Yeah, I mean, I was always playing. Normally, it was thirty sixty for me back in the days when I first came to Vegas, and uh, fifty and one hundred and seventy five one fifty. That was my range that I played in back in those, those days. Those are big games today. Yeah, and, and, and back then, and mostly it was uh, seven card stud high low splits. What I played most of the time back then, you know, I was pretty good at stud. Now stud was very popular when I first came out to Vegas. You know, there were a few Lemon Hold'em games, but mostly it was seven-card stud and then Lemon Hold'em. I mean, no Lemon Hold'em didn't even exist in those days. It didn't yeah. even exist till the World Poker Tour came around past the turn of the century. <laughs> you couldn't find a no Lemon Hold'em game anywhere in the country prior to that on a regular basis. But uh, back Hold'em? then it was all Lemon Hold'em yeah. and, and Lemon Poker and, mm-hmm. you know, seven-card stud and uh, seven-card stud eight or better, which was my game. And, uh, you know, that's the game I played for a living. And it's the game I won my bracelet in in 1989, the first one. And to me, that was my world championship because that's the event I played every day. I didn't yeah. play no Lemon Oldham back then. And so it, that was special. So, <laughs> um, Let's let's talk about the boom. Do you like the phrase moneymaker boom? I, 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 well, I assume you prefer poker boom to moneymaker boom. Yeah, I, I prefer world poker tour boom because honestly. <laughs> you're just going to take all the credit. No, I, I promise you. I mean, moneymaker was a factor. Online poker was a factor. The truth of the matter, the real truth of the matter, it was the World Poker Tour that created the poker boom. They're the one that put the show on in prime time on a weekly basis. And the popularity of the World Poker Tour every night on the Wednesday night on the Travel Channel, that show was so popular that it just exploded from there. Then come along moneymaker right after that, and online poker was exploding. It was just a combination of things at the perfect time in history that just caused the explosion. But... Uh, you know, Moneymaker certainly had a role, and there's no doubt about it, but well, it, it was television Chris, that, you know, that played the role. If in you explosion. ask Chris, he's modest about it, too. He's like, I don't know why they called it the Moneymaker Boom. Yeah, you know, no. I, have, I have a good name. <laughs> yeah, I promise you, I'm not saying it because I was with the World Poker Tour. <laughs> it was the World Poker Tour that caused the explosion. So let's talk about getting in with the, with the WPT. This is 2002. Well, actually, 2002 is when they started, but they, they must have approached you earlier. Was there an audition process? Were there other people? I uh, know there's no audition at all. I mean, the audition for me was uh, back in the late '90s. Steve Lipscomb, who created the World Poker Tour, 
uh, did a documentary for the at the World Series of Poker, mm-hmm. and he did an interview with me during that documentary. This was ninety nine. Yeah, and then no, this was before that, like okay. ninety seven or eight. And then I put on the Tournament of Champions in nineteen ninety nine for three years, mm-hmm. and the last year I put it on a live internet broadcast, and the internet wasn't even popular back then. And we got Steve Lipscomb to film it for us. So he filmed it. Now, it was my tournament because I created it and put it on. So I did the commentary at the final table. Now, when the tournament's over with, he comes up to me and says, Mike, he said, that was the best job of poker commentary I've ever heard. I said, well, thanks. You know, I didn't think anything about it. Then a year later, there was a poker tournament in Costa Rica. And Steve Lipscomb uh, was invited down there by Linda Johnson, and I went down and he had lunch with Linda and I, and he said, I've got an idea for you two. Now, at this time, Linda Johnson, own card player, was the biggest thing in poker. And I'd put on the Tournament of Champions, so I was out there among the players, you know, at that time. And he told us his idea about the World Poker Tour, putting it on television, making poker a sport. And, blah. Yeah. and of course, we loved it. <laughs> and he said, you know, but I don't have any money. It's going to take $3.5 million for a couple years, you know, to produce it and put on the shows, et cetera, et cetera. Do you know anybody that might be interested in doing that? And, and I said, I do. And I had two people in mind for him. And one was Lyle Berman, who's a Poker Hall of Famer, who was also the Casino Man of the Year once. And the other one was going to be uh, Jerry Buss, the owner of the Los Angeles Lakers. Well, we never got to Jerry Buss. <laughs> we got to Lyle, and Linda and I went with him to make the presentation to Lyle. And then he started the World Poker Tour, and the rest is history, as they say. And, you know, then he came to me and said, Mike, he said, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is I want you to be a commentator on the World Poker Tour. The bad news is if you take the job, you can't play in any of the tournaments. Was that, uh, a, was that a company rule or, uh, or that a gaming was, regulation? That was his rule, no. Okay. It was just his rule. He just felt, uh, you know, he chose Vince as the other commentator, that if we played the events and made the final table, somebody might think it was fishy or, you know, the deck was stacked or something. You know, he didn't want to take any chances mm-hmm. of any kind of image. Well, I that, remember that something was going wrong. So. I remember back in those days when poker was starting to come out of the shadows and become more mainstream, people were very careful about how they presented it on television to the point where they didn't even like talking about chops because, you know, it might well, be Well, we didn't allow deals on the World Poker know. Tour, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And something that he and I had discussions about because I'm against it. You know, I'm a poker player. And to me, unless they're adding money to the prize pool, you know, where they can dictate the terms of yep. what you have to do. You know, anybody's putting money in the prize pool, now I think they have a right to tell you you can't. But if it's all your money, like it was, all the players' money, mm-hmm. you know, how can they tell somebody they can't make a deal? But he knew the drama and understood the drama of television. Exactly. And you don't get the same, if you split up all the money, there is no big reaction now if you lose, you know, <laughs> kind of thing, or excitement when you win. And he said, look, the PGA Tour doesn't allow people to chop when they go in the playoffs. Yeah, you can't chop the prize money, and we're not doing it here either. And the difference know. between the PGA Tour and the World Poker Tour is the World Poker Tour is highlighting the money at stake. Every... Well, the players put up all the money in the World Poker Tour. Exactly, that's the difference. But and... in golf, someone's putting yeah, exactly. for third place, and it's exactly. But that was his analogy putt. anyway. Yeah, the drama on television is much higher. He felt. Yeah. You know, if they were playing for the you know big difference of five hundred thousand. Now back then, you got to realize. Every event had a million dollar first place prize just mm-hmm. about because all our buy-ins in the early days were ten thousand was the minimum buy-in. We had a fifteen thousand twice a year and then a twenty five thousand dollar championship event buy-in and that was enormous back then. Yeah. But they were all ten K buy-ins. And we didn't switch that till about seven years in 
into the WPT, and it's a good thing they switched it. Otherwise, we might not exist today, to be honest with you. I mean, the market just couldn't stand pounding yeah. everybody with 10K buy-ins all the time. So, you know, wisely they dropped it to 5Ks and 3,500s for the televised events, and it's been way, way, way better for them. And if people it allows more players to play. Multiple bullets anyway. You know, and it creates more satellite winners. It creates more people an opportunity to play, and it's just better. I read that uh, Eric Saito and a few other players were very against whole card cameras. They were very against it in the beginning, and I had to sit down and talk to a lot of them and say, look, you know, you're playing for this kind of prize money because this event's on television. You know, you wouldn't have a field half this big if it wasn't for television, which they wouldn't back in those days. Yeah. Probably not 25% as big. But back then, everybody wanted to be on TV, and the prize pools were so big, everyone wanted to play and win them. In fact, the biggest stars in poker today, believe it or not, are still the guys that won back on the early years of the World Poker Tour. And we all know they're not near as good as the players are today, but still they're the biggest names in poker today because they were the ones that won on television back in the early days and, and became the biggest stars in poker. And, and, uh, and you're not talking about Seidel, of course. On that well, one. no, Eric Seidel is one that's <laughs> gone through the ages and, and, and Daniel he, as well. still remarkable. People are yeah. still in the top of their game. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, there's a few that have seeped through, you know, but for the most part, if you look back at the winners of the first five years, you don't see many of them around these days. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure that is that the was that the case before in poker when you were coming up, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s. Did you see a lot of people drop off? Because nowadays, I'm talking to to people in their you know late 20s, early 30s, and they're telling me their only ambition in life growing up was to become a poker player. But back then, I assume you kind of just fell into it. Yeah, you sort of fall into it, and, and uh, you know. But back in the old days, tournament poker wasn't big. It wasn't that big. You had the World Series once a year, and that was it, basically. I mean, and even during the World Series. The best players, the Chips, the Doyles, the Stewies, they played the cash games because you could win more in a cash game in one day than if you won the tournament. That's Except for how, Phil. Phil was playing tournaments. That's how big they were back in those days. Yeah. But I promise you, had Doyle Brunson, had Chip Brees, had Puggy Pearson, had these guys played tournament poker since the 70s and played all the events, Phil would be so far behind him in bracelets <laughs> right now, it wouldn't even be funny. Now, I know the fields were smaller and all, but they didn't play tournaments. It didn't mean anything back in those days. You know, it was just winning cash. That was that what was about the big yourself? thing about I the mean, World Series of Poker. You missed almost a decade of World Series. Yeah. I'm sure you could have had a few more bracelets as and, well. Oh, yeah, I, I could have if I had played them all. And uh, But once I got the taste in my mouth, the first time I ever went to the World Series, mm-hmm. I knew I'd never miss another World Series. And, you know, because I got outdrawn in the first Pot Lemon Omaha event that they ever held at the World Series with five left, I'll never forget it. But, <laughs> you know, where I thought I should have won the bracelet the very first time I came out to the World Series of Poker. <laughs> it took me five more years to get it. and uh, But I knew right then my desire, my passion in life was to get one of those bracelets. Because, you know, back then they only gave out like a dozen a year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like now where they give out 65 or whatever it is. You know, there was only a dozen it's you could bigger. get back It's more. Then, you know, <laughs> and uh, so it was very prestigious. Uh, the bracelets were a lot nicer. You know, they were really solid gold and really pure, but uh, that would put you in the upper echelon of being a player back then, and even does today, actually, and I salute the World Series, how they marketed the bracelet, you know, because as poker players, it should be all about the money, mm-hmm. and truthfully, I can remember a few years back when a guy won three bracelets at the World Series of Poker, and his total wins was like 700000 because he won the seven-card studs and the Raz and something else, and, and but he got all the press because he won three bracelets. Now, somebody that won a $1,500 no-limit holder might got a million, too. So he won a half million more, but he didn't get any press compared to this guy, you know. So it's all about the bracelets. They market the bracelets. Even today, players talk about, 
that's all they talk about, how many bracelets have you won, you know, mm-hmm. instead of all-time earnings, so to speak, you know, which should be the real ranking of players, you know, so to speak, if, if you're talking about what you're playing for, which is money. But, uh, you know, they they brainwashed the players, so to speak. And me too, I fell in that category. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it is about the bracelets. And if you don't have one, you want to play and get one. Well, let's talk about the World Series for a little bit. You did call them out a few years ago. And, and you know, it's – kind of interesting with your reputation when when you speak people listen whereas opposed where someone else is complaining about the world series even a world champion could complain about the world series and everyone just goes stop talking (laughs) yeah well first of all in history i doubt there's very many few you couldn't count on one hand people that love the world series more than i do Mm -hmm. ever since the beginning since i went there from day one i've never missed it ever year so i'm a huge world series fan but I did call them out, not call them out. I was asked my opinion about the November 9, you know, and I'm all for trying something new if it's going to benefit poker. I was all for it the first year or so, you know, to see how it worked out, you know, and, yeah. and tested it, you know, even though I didn't like it because I didn't think it it created a fair playing field. You know, I don't think a guy should be allowed to study four more months and get coaching and all that before right. he finishes a poker tournament. I didn't like him holding your money. I thought it was terrible that – uh, people that lived in uh, Finland or Australia or something had to come all the way back. I mean, one time somebody's going to come back with like three big blinds and you're going to fly in from Australia and you get no more money if you finish in ninth place. Yeah. You know, so I didn't like that. But the worst part was to me, suppose a Doyle Brunson made the final table in July and then died in August or September before the final table. Let's or not some, Doyle. Let's find some wood to knock on. Or not just Doyle, any player. <laughs> Doesn't matter who it yeah. is. Sometimes somebody's going to die before the final table takes place. And yeah. when it does, now you're going to have a morgue around the final table. You're going to have a little casket in that guy's seat, you know, a little thing on the table, and they're going to blind him off. And it's just going to create an environment that's terrible. And whoever wins it, it's they're all going to say, well, yeah. if that guy was there, you would have never won it. And that's going to be a shadow over him. And I just don't think it's a good idea from those reasons. And, and uh, you know, now I know that they pay you ninth place money and you get a million, but there's a big difference in a million and four million. Yeah. You know, or a million and eight million, you know, and in July, people want to move their families. You might want to, you know, you know, your life might change completely from four million from one million, you know, so to speak, you know, of where you want to live and what you want to do and yeah. and grow up, et cetera. So, you know, I just think the negatives outweighed the positives and I expressed it and. You know, I don't know if they were happy with it, the World Series. and You kind of are, like, if you're an average person off the street, I never thought about this, but you kind of are held hostage a little bit in those four months because you have a million dollars, and that's fine. But, yeah, there's a huge difference between first and ninth place, and you kind of can't make any decisions <laughs> until you see where you end up. Yeah, but even, like, fourth place or fifth place yeah. where you get three, four, five million. Huge difference. Or whatever yeah. it is, it's a big difference. And I don't like the idea that guys can train and get coaching and become better players. Mm-hmm. They're going to be a completely different player when you see them now in November than they were back when you played with them in July. And I just don't think you should penalize good players, yeah. which is what you're doing. You know, you're rewarding weaker players because now they have time to become better players. And, of course, the argument that Ty and, and uh, Jack would make is, well, you know, we need time to air them, you know, see how people how they got to the final but table. But see, I don't buy that. The World Poker Tour doesn't always show how they get to the final table, yeah. you know what I mean? No, yeah, I understand, but I, I don't buy it. I think that their ratings would be the same if they held the final table two or three days later, you know, in July. Say you finished on a Wednesday, you could have the final table on Saturday, for example. You could fly all your friends and family in in those two days' time, give players a couple days off. 
yeah. fill up the arena. It'll be packed just like it is now. Wouldn't be any difference. Now, you know, marketing-wise, the first couple of years, it benefited the players dramatically because yeah. in the beginning, players could get patch deals uh, from online sites and all that. But obviously, once they stopped online poker in the U.S., none of those deals existed anymore. So now players don't have that opportunity. It doesn't exist anymore like mm-hmm. it used to. You know, you can't make that kind of money that you could make back in the day when online poker was around. So be- because they can't benefit and make more money now, yeah, you know, I-, I just think it's time just to go back to finish the tournament when you start it. That's all. Well, you brought up online poker. I want to talk about party poker because you, you mentioned it in-, in the book uh, that you had a pretty big gamble with them, right? Because I'm sure at the time when you signed a party poker, there were all these sites, and they were all trying to grab the top known players. And a few... well, actually, there weren't many sites when I started with party poker. Oh, well, not when you started party poker, but yeah. after that, there was like a flood of them, and oh, some yeah. of them didn't always turn out the greatest. Yeah, no, it's true, and uh, you know, it's unique at that time when we started. Paradise Poker was the king. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever thought anybody would catch them back in the day, and then they had Mike Carroll's site, which was Planet Poker. You know, it wasn't his site, but he was the face of the yeah. site at that time. But they always had software glitches and problems. I remember Daniel and, had his own site. And then for a we while. were starting Party Poker about the same time Poker Stars was starting their site. And, you know, I was hired uh, to be the poker domain expert from somebody, you know, a company that really knew nothing about poker. And they just heard that online poker might be the next thing. They were already in the online casino business. Mm-hmm. They had blackjack games and roulette games and stuff already. They'd done that for a couple of years. And so they hired me, uh, you know, a couple of days before Christmas of 2000. A week later, I was in India working with a software development team, you know, to create Party Poker. Were and you gung-ho right away or were you like, this isn't going to work? You can't even see the players' faces. Uh, <laughs> no, no, because I'd seen Player Paradise Poker and I, mm-hmm. you know, was familiar with online no, poker. No, I, mean, I didn't mean like on Party Poker. Oh. I meant like on the concept of online poker just in general. Yeah, well, the reason it's so successful is because it is live. It's happening right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might be sitting in Germany, and he might be sitting in Australia, and I'm sitting in California, and the other guy's in uh, Florida or somewhere else, but everybody's there at the same time. Yeah, might be a different time in your time zone, but you're all sitting there playing just like you were in a casino sitting at a table playing. And because it's live is why it worked. And, you know, it's fantastic, and it, it was ingenious. And I'm just wondering if any of the of, of the uh, purists, the old guard, like had some reservations at first. Or... Well, you always have reservations because you know, you know the reservation obviously from old school players. How do you trust that? You know, who do <laughs> yeah. you know who's operating? Who do you know who's dealing the cards? Mm-hmm. Why are they going to let you win? You know, how do you know the guy sitting in the other seat's not working for the casino that they're building, and they just let him win every pot and take all your money? I mean, this is the concept. Natural skeptics, card players. You know that that uh, you know they had back in those days, but you know back in the early days. You know, in the 70s, even when I came out here, I mean, there's a lot of shady things going on in card rooms, mm-hmm. you know, because the casinos didn't run the card rooms back in those days. Individuals ran the card rooms, and they just paid rent to the casino, so the casino never paid attention to what went on in that room, really. Yeah. You know, so some, you know, strange things happened in those rooms, let's say. But once the casinos took over running the card room, where their reputation is now on the line, mm-hmm. you know, now it's their mission to keep the games honest and pure, and now you got the cameras in the sky that they're always looking at and all that, so... It's became a much cleaner game now, you know. Certainly since casinos took over uh, poker. Well, I read that you that you sold your stock in uh in party, but that you still you obviously still work for them. Um, uh, what do you what do you feel like the 
current temperature is for online poker in the world? You you like where it's headed, or well, certainly it's expanding globally. I mean, poker's expanding globally a lot the last few years, and it's going to continue to expand globally, I believe. And you know, it's no longer America's game. It hasn't been for a while now. I mm-hmm. mean, poker is very popular in every country, just about, and you have great players in every country. And Asia is obviously the new biggest boom that everybody's looking at. And if China or Japan, these countries legalize, you know, poker in their countries and online gaming, I mean, you'll see another explosion bigger than the one we saw back in, mm-hmm. you know, 2002 and 2003. When the World Poker Tour boom happened. When the World Poker Tour started, yes. But <laughs> online poker exploded then as well. And, and uh, uh, But certainly uh, online poker was a big boom, for example, to the World Series of Poker. And, you know, they made a fortune from online poker sites advertising and party poker sponsored the world series in 2006 they paid 20 million to sponsor it they paid 2 million just to put a sign up in valet parking for example wow they sponsored the tournament champions where they put up two more million i mean that's the kind of money that was flying around back in those days because online poker was so successful and when uigea was passed you know in uh, october 2006 uh, it's when party poker had to leave the country but uh, they were the Coca-Cola of online poker back then. We had 58% of the entire market when we left the U.S. back in those days. And people don't know it nowadays because the party hadn't been around for 10, 12 years in the States. But yeah. but the truth of the matter is they were the king back in those days, and and uh, we were doing over $2 million a day in revenue back then, you wow. know, just from our poker site. So uh, it was big business, and uh, it's unfortunate that we had to leave the U.S. And obviously, as we know, poker stars, full tilt, and some other sites stayed on because they weren't publicly traded companies at that time. Yeah. And they didn't think they'd be punished. And they lasted five more years. And obviously our customers went over because they were going to play uh, to Full Tilt and the, and the Poker Stars. And uh, Poker Stars became king. And, yeah. and uh, you know, and then in obviously April 15th of 2011, they banned online poker from the U.S. And, and unfortunately, the fiasco at Full Tilt, where they didn't have money to pay the players, put a big black eye in the industry, and it was very sad. And I hate to see it, and, you know, it's unfortunate. And hopefully one day it's all going to come back. I still believe it is, maybe state by state, but I think it will be a domino effect. And once it starts, once Pennsylvania does it or California does it or some big states do it, others are going to say, hey, why are we missing out on that revenue? You know, we can get that because every state needs revenue. Yeah. And it's just mind-boggling to me. How hypocritical it is, number one, that you can't do online poker. And number two, even people that are totally against gaming, you know, which I can understand and I appreciate it. You know, that's fine. If you don't like it, don't play it. But millions do like it. But even if you don't like it and don't play it, you benefit from your police department getting more money, from your roads getting paved and getting better, from your fire departments, from schools. So you make all these benefits. So why would anybody be against it? You know, it just doesn't make sense to me. And, uh. So it's so crazy that you can go in a casino and play all day, and then you can't go home and play a $20 satellite or a tournament, you know, yeah, where you exactly. might win $1,000. I mean, it's so aggravating that it's just unbelievable. Well, get you in a better mood. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the bracelet. You mentioned you had a big tournament of champions win. But getting your name on that trophy, that World Poker Tour trophy, because you mentioned the bracelets and how we've all been brainwashed into thinking – you know, but I would yeah. love my name on that trophy. You know what yeah. I mean? No, that it, thing looks like the Stanley Cup. Yeah, it's true. And, uh, uh, you know, winning uh, the bracelet, the the thrill will never be the same because I was young. It was the first big thing. It was my dream of life back then. Yeah. But now that I've worked for the World Poker Tour, obviously, 
Now, you have to remember, Vince and I couldn't play WPT events for the first eight years, seven, eight years. You know, so we've only been allowed to play the last six or so. And uh, and you have a good record so, in those six years. I, it's, I have a decent record. I mean, I made three final tables and cashed yeah. a number of times. But uh, but getting the W, getting the win, boy, I, it really makes a difference. And it, it really was fun for me. And it's fun not just because of the prize money and to get your name on the trophy, because now I'm eligible to play in the Tournament of Champions. And, you know, that's very prestigious to me because I created the original Tournament of Champions. Yeah. And then I won the WSOP Tournament of Champions in 2006. Uh, for a million dollars and so now i'm going to have an opportunity for the trifecta here if i could ever get lucky and win the tournament champions uh of the world poker tour so it's exciting to me and i, I there won't be anybody more excited to play in it than i will be uh because it's prestigious to me but and what's beautiful about it is now i'll be eligible the rest of my life to play in it so you know that it's pretty cool winning that and of course you know when you win in at playground poker in montreal canada it's the absolute coolest prize in all of poker because it's literally a huge championship belt like you see world champion boxers get and UFC fighters get. Yeah. And it's the only one we have in poker. And I'm telling you, it weighs a lot. It's cool. It's hand engraved. And and how often you know, do you wear it? You know, when I, I sent a picture uh, back to my son who's eight years old, he said, Dad, that's cool. He said, I want you to win that. I said, hey, you know, I like to win it, but, you know, they're pretty hard to win these events, you know. And I did win it, so then I got to give him the, the belt. So he now owns the belt, but uh, uh, I got a, uh, a picture of him on my phone now with a, you know, wearing the belt around him so I get to see it every day. It must have stung a little bit seeing Tony take one down, right? No, actually I was happy for Tony because, uh, you know, I thought he was one of the smarter young guys coming up. And, you know, he, he said he hadn't done good the first few years when he tried tournament poker and all and, yeah. and struggled a bit. and uh, You know, but he had the vision to understand the value of, taking the job with the World Poker Tour and how it could get him out there and the way he dresses and conducts himself and uh, now, you know, has to deal with party poker and whatnot. And, and you know, but he could see the limelight and, and he could see the benefits yeah. of, uh, you know, whose sponsorship may go after, uh, you know, if they, and when poker becomes legalized online again and it was sort of setting the table. So for him to get a WPT title, uh, we still needle him about it, though, and that he won his event in the smallest field in the history of the World <laughs> Poker Tour down on an island down in uh, Well, I hope Vince uh, isn't needling him because yeah. we still got to get Vince yeah, yeah. Uh, a title. Yeah, Vince doesn't play that many. He, you know, he plays once in a while. He just doesn't have yeah. the patience for tournament poker. Eventually, he just can't stand it. He bluffs his money off every time and, you know, in the tournaments. Even he gets old a lot of chips sometimes. Uh, but he did good last year at Oklahoma. He got all the way down to the final two tables and, and had a shot there and uh, – uh, then he wasn't happy with the way he played from there out. But, but uh, you know, Vince just doesn't play that many. But, you know, maybe one day, hopefully, we'll, he'll get one too. I, it must have been awesome recently seeing the first open female winner um, oh. out of, of a World Poker Tour. Yeah. It was uh, in, the same, in the same venue that you won yours. Yeah. And her name was Emma. And her last name starts with a Z. And I just call <laughs> Sem- her Emma. Semjovic or? Yeah. But I'm telling you, the girl can play. I mean, really play. Now, when I won my tournament – she finished fifth in that tournament. <laughs> yeah. She was at that final table as well. And I promise you, from the fourth table all the way down to that final table, she was the boss at the tables. She dominated place. She sat right on my left and was the biggest thorn in my side. Every time I raced, she would three-bet me. And every time I would make a continuum best, she would call. Whether she had in or not, you know, she would float. But whatever it took, but she was tough. <laughs> and I was so glad that things went didn't go well for her at my final table that I won the tournament, uh, you know, and, and she ran into some hands and, 
I might have misplayed one, and, and it cost her, and she ended up going out in fifth place. But I was so happy to see her back at the final table again in Montreal here just a week or so ago. And then she took the tournament off, and I was really happy to see it. And uh, you know, now is we've that got, one going to be on TV as well? And it's not on TV, unfortunately. Because uh, you would have some crazy insight. It's sadly, yeah, it's not on TV. And I was there, and I watched it all, but uh, it wasn't a televised event. And I'm sad to see it because you know I want the world to see this girl play because mm-hmm. I'm telling you, she can play. I mean, really play the game. And uh, there were so many close yeah, calls yeah, over the years. Yeah, too, you're going to be uh, seeing her a lot. Yeah, we had a lot of second place finishes. Was that JJ um, Lou? Yeah, JJ Lou, Kathy Liebert. Uh, yeah. I think Jennifer Harmon. She might have come third. I don't know if she came second. I, I'm pretty sure JJ did it like three times. Yeah, but JJ's <laughs> done it a couple times. And, and uh, uh, there's been a, a few of them that have gotten close, but they just haven't quite got there. So, in an open event, meaning a buy-in event on the World Poker right, Tour. Right, right, right. Now, men, the master wins, wife. Van Win won our WPT Invitational one of the first couple of years, mm-hmm. but you know poker players weren't even allowed to play in that. A lot of them. you know the yeah. big names were invited, but other guys couldn't get in, and it was a limited field because there were a lot of Hollywood celebrities. It was a very fast structure, thirty-minute structures, and uh, but still good for her. Well, my I mean, boss here at Car Player made the final table of that one. Yeah, one he year. made the final table one year, and uh, Barry Greenstein won that tournament. Uh, Lane Flack won that tournament, and. Uh, Phil Locke won that tournament, so a lot of big That's name right. players won those invitational tournaments, and so Van Wyn should get credit just like those guys do for winning a WPT title. And uh, but you know the claim that that she had, well, everybody couldn't enter, and it was a fast structure, and blah blah mm. blah. And it's been amazing to me that it's taken this long, honestly, for you know a woman to win. Now, Vanessa Selps came close once as well, and uh, but. You know, I'm glad that that monkey is off the back now and women see that they can do it. And I think you're going to see more of this girl, Emma, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, she can play. So you're a guy who wears, like, a lot of different hats, right? You know, you get the books. By the way, I still have my signed copy of your strategy book from back in the day. Um, But uh, player, commentator, your brand ambassador, what do you consider your main job? Well, the main job is probably with the World Poker Tour, followed by Party Poker. But what do you What do you want people to, and, to remember you by? Well, you know, I just want – I'd be happy if someone remembered. Ah, the guy could play a little bit, and, you know, he did a good job in promoting poker and being an ambassador for the game. And, you know, I do believe I played a key role yeah. in, in both televised poker and online poker. I had extremely key roles in both of those things, and obviously that's what turned poker – into a global explosion and a, a huge popular game. So I'm proud of that niche, and, you know, I'm proud of the accomplishments I've had as a player. So, you know, I, I've run the full gamut, and, uh, you know, I, I just hope people would say, you know, that guy was good for the game, and, you know, we were lucky to have him kind of thing, that's all. Well, I read a quote that, uh, or an article that called you the like something like the only lock for poker's Mount Rushmore. <laughs> so let's go with that, right? Let's say, okay, Mike Sexton is the first face on Poker's Mount Rushmore, whatever that means. Um, who are the other three? Well, in my book, he put Chip Reese up there first, uh, maybe Doyle, Stu Unger, Puggy Pearson. Yeah, he has too many names already. You know, I know, I've got too many names, but <laughs> to me, those guys are true Hall of Famers. Those are the legends in poker. You know, those guys back in the 70s that started the World Series of Poker, that played the highest stakes games in the world. You know, these guys are icons in my eyes, you know, and I'll never change that, you know. And, and uh, you know, the Johnny Mosses and the Puggies and the Chips and the Doyles and the Stewies, you know, and the Jack Strausses. These guys, 
you know, will always be up there in my mind, you know, and I'll never rank ahead of them in my mind as a player. Now, all-around contributions of the game, yes, okay. then perhaps I'll go past them. But, but uh, you know, as far as players go, you know, I have a lot of players ranked way higher than me, honestly, and, and – uh, you know, but I, I do believe that. Uh, I think I, you're selling yourself short there. Well, I played a role, certainly in in expanding the game, and I'm very proud of that. And you know, there, there's very few that have done, you know, probably more for the game than I have over the course of a career. So I, I am proud of that. Um, I have to ask: Does Mike Sexton have any enemies? <laughs> Is oh, there anybody who doesn't like you? Because uh, I had trouble finding anyone. Well, so. I mean, there may be some out there. I don't know, you know, but. I try to get along with everybody and, and uh, you know, try to help everybody if I can. No and big confrontations, no professional rivals back no, in the day? No, actually even not back in the day. I don't think I've ever had any professional rivals. You know, you compete hard against each other, but away from the table, you know, you go have a beer and you laugh and you joke and you play golf together. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just the life of a poker player. And you accept that, that at the table there are no friends. I mean, it is all enemies. And, you know, when I was growing up, nobody ever soft played anybody and, you know, you never felt sorry for a guy if he was losing because, you know, and I see it, you know, I've seen it in my career, you know, you feel sorry for guys because he's losing and so, you know, I might not bet him like as hard as you might or he's a friend of yours and you're feeling sorry, but if you don't get his money, somebody else is going to get it. So Yeah, you better know, you than someone else. You only have X amount of opportunities a day in terms of making money with hands that you have and if you don't take advantage of those as a professional player, uh, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage. Now, I know your your autobiography, Life's a Gamble. Go get it. Get it on Amazon. Actually, I'm going to recommend people get it on uh, the audio version. Is yeah. That, you read that one, right? Yeah, I do. I I'm going to get that one version. Next. I promise you, you'll enjoy it. It's it's fun to hear it in my voice and hear the stories. And and uh, it's a great book. And anybody out there that doesn't know about it by now, it's called Life's a Gamble. It's not a how-to poker book, but there's a lot of life lessons in there that you can learn Full about, of stories. Yeah, and there's a lot of gambling stories from the real icons of the poker world and uh, a lot of stories on the golf course and uh, gambling, a, a lot of history of the World Series of Poker, the first 30 years of the World Series of Poker. There's stories about them. It tells about the poker explosion. Well, there's a book's full of a lot of prop bets, and the one I read about uh, was the when you laid Ivy 30-1 to 1 on the first 50K. Yeah. Which was a dangerous situation because he made that final table. Yeah, yeah, did he ever. He made a third, and the guy would never settle either. I tried to sell it for three hundred thousand. You know, I mean, I tried to sell it for a hundred thousand. The bet was ten k, huh? The bet was ten k. No, ten yeah. uh, k for okay. So yeah, 30 to I laid him thirty to one. Okay, so I was laying him three hundred thousand to ten thousand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the first horse <laughs> tournament. Now I thought there'd be about one hundred fifty entries, and there were. Like there were one hundred forty-eight entries in the first event, mm -hmm. and he was, and he said, "I'll take eighty to one." I said, "No." He said, "I'll take seventy-one. <laughs> we're playing in a poker game together." I said, no. He said, 60, 50. I said, Phil, I'll lay you 30 to 1. I told you that. And he's negotiating all the way down. So finally, he takes 10000 two $5,000 chips. He throws them across the table. He said, okay, I'm taking 30 to 1 on myself. <laughs> now we're playing a few minutes later. Now he takes another 10000 He said, I want to bet another 10000 on myself. I said, the price went down. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, he said, you're 25 to 1 now. I said, you can bet at 25 to 1. He said, "No, I got to have at least thirty to one." I threw the ten thousand back at him. I said, "No, I, I'm not." You know, I, of course, I didn't really want him to bet anymore. Anyway, and, <laughs> yeah, uh, now you're on the hook just yeah. in case he wins it. So now I'm playing in a tournament, and I'm thinking, "Oh my God, I'm gonna lose three hundred thousand, maybe to this guy," because he's playing, he's going long, and I dump my chips off, and like in the early on day two, because I'm just always <laughs> focused on his table instead of mine. 
Now he makes the final table. And now I come in the next day, and there's a pot lemon Omaha game going right next to the final table, believe it or not. They had a cash game going. And so I'm sitting in there. I got a seat in there because I wanted to watch this final table that he's at. And Chip Reese was there and and, uh, and Andy Block and, and some others. But anyway, but now it's strictly no limit hold'em. Remember, they played limit poker all the way to the final table. Now it's strictly no limit hold'em. And Doyle was at that final table. Too. And uh, where he's the – you know, where he, I know he felt he's a big favorite there, but he was sitting seventh in chips when the final table started. So now he comes by my table. He says, What do you want to do? And I said, I'll give you 125000 <sighs> You know, and he thought about it. No, I'll take 150 <laughs> I said, No, good luck to you. So he went back to the table. Now, Bob. I mean, uh, uh, Greg Rammer was sitting in the game with me. Now, he gets out his calculator. He said, how many chips has he got? He gets his calculator. He's calculating all this. He said, it's impossible not to take 100000 It's impossible. He said, his equity is only $47,400. It's impossible not to take a – I said, Greg, I said, you don't know Phil Ivey. Yeah. I said, first of all, he'd rather beat me out of the 300000 than win the $2.5 million he's going to win over there. That's number one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he believes that he's going to win the tournament. So now they play down, he's still in, he's still in, he's still in. They get down to the final three players, he's still in. Now he's still short on chips. He's only still got about 25% of the chips. And now he comes by the table again. He's laughing and you know, cackling. What do you want to do now, big boy, he says. Well, by now he's locked up 600K. And, yeah. But I said, I'll give you 100. I said, I'll give you 100,000 because he still didn't have anywhere near a third of the chips. <laughs> and he said, just because it's you. He said, I'll take 125. <laughs> I said, no. I said, I'll give you 100. Good luck to you. And he didn't take the 100. Man. He went back and played. The very first hand back at the table, he was all in. And I had to sweat it, and he got knocked out in third place. So hey, you had to sweat so much. But that what a sweat. But the very next year, I didn't learn my lesson. I gave him the same Tim debt. Three, for the next two years, I gave it to him. But he was always out in day one the next couple of years after that. So I never had a sweat. But, <laughs> but it was a big sweat for 300000 just to try to win 10, I must say. I like it. Um, we just wrap up with some quick uh, rapid fire stuff. Any weirdest place you've ever been recognized by a fan, or weirdest fan experience? Oh gosh! Because you're one of the, I'd say, dozen poker players who could probably be recognized by most of the public, right? Uh, probably. I mean, you know, I get recognized in airports a fair amount, and sometimes it's funny because I'm sitting at a bar talking to somebody on the right. And the guy on my left or somebody will turn around. I knew that was you. I recognized the voice. You know? Yeah. And everybody recognizes my voice. So they all say that to me. You know, I recognize the voice. Is that a Dayton voice, voice by the way? Or is it a North no, Carolina? No, it's not. It's a North Carolina voice, okay. actually. I lived in North Carolina 15 years, and I picked up a little southern twang <laughs> down there. And because they always thought I was a damn Yankee that came south, you know, back then. And uh, what about in Fort Bragg? But, but I, that's where I picked up the southern accent was yeah. when I lived in North Carolina. And it's bode well for me. <laughs> yeah, it works. it works on camera for sure. Uh, do you remember your first? Well, that wouldn't work because that because most people they don't I'm, jump right in. I remember my what? I asked people what their big first life, their first big life tournament experience was. Yeah, but, well, uh, mine was in uh, Lake Tahoe with Amarillo Slam Super Bowl of Poker. Oh, the Super Bowl of Poker. That's yeah, right. Back yeah, back in 1980 or 1981, uh, he held the Super Bowl of Poker up in Lake Tahoe up there, and I went up there, and all the players went up there. Now back then, Amarillo Slam played three places. 60% for first, 30% for second, 10% for third. That was it. Didn't matter how so many So you could have 170 yeah. players in a tournament, only three got paid. Wow. 
I mean, it was really unbelievable. And so to make the money in his tournament was not easy. And I played in the Razz tournament. The first cash I ever had in any poker tournament was in Amarillo Slim. And I finished third, and I was so proud of that. And I still have my picture of me in Amarillo Slim. You know, him giving me the money back then in, uh, in third place. But I still didn't get the World Series for a few more years after that. Super Bowl of Poker. That'd be a fun one to re- revive. It was fun. It was Another a one. Hit, believe me, it was a huge event in the 80s. You know, all the big players that played the World Series went to Slim Super Bowl. It was a big event back in the day. And he held it in Lake Tahoe most of the years. Uh, he held it in Vegas here the first year and then went to Reno and then moved it up to Lake Tahoe. And everybody loved going up there because he held it, you know, right after this is a week before the Super Bowl, or a week right after the Super Bowl, I mean. And it was snowing and everybody went skiing and it was just a beautiful time. It was a great event. Uh, I don't think you listen to uh, music at the tables. I don't think I've ever seen you with headphones on. I do once in a while, okay. like at the World Series events when you play day long, day ones, 12, mm-hmm. 14 hours. I'll listen to them there. If there's a particular you know, chatty but, guy but in your... But normally <laughs> speaking in WPT events, I don't because I'd rather socialize at the table. But what are you listening to when but, you do? What What is... Uh... I listen like uh, old, you know, oldies but goodies and uh, uh, rhythm and blues. And it's old swing dance music, what shag dance music. And, what you know, it's a form of swing dance. And mm-hmm. it's the greatest music ever and... I bet you're a good yeah. swing dancer. You know, yeah. I mean, I like to dance. I grew up dancing in a dance family, and I've always danced. And you know, been all the wives and everybody dancing all the time. Generally speaking, see, and that's how you. That's how you become good with women. I think. Yeah. If you're a man who can in dance, my life, it's how all the women I went steady with, and all the wives except one, I met out <laughs> dancing. So, it, it definitely played a big role in my life for sure. And I can imagine. And, and it is the best way to get to women for sure because all women like a guy that can dance. Yeah, I imagine um, poker not so much the greatest uh, profession for relationships. Yeah, but, I mean, you see a lot of guys do meet women that play poker and, and they end up getting together. But in my situation, it was always on the dance floor. Uh, let's wrap up with uh, two more. What's your favorite tournament destination? Well, I'd say Montreal right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as a poker player, it's funny. You always like places that you do well at. Yeah. Now, I used to do well at the Aviation Club in Paris, so I used to like to go there. I always did well at Foxwoods. Now, back in the 90s, Foxwoods was huge. Yeah. And it was massive, and I always did well there. And now Montreal that I've won there, you know. So where you do well is where you always have your fondest memories, and uh, so that's what are most popular with you. So, you know, I fall in that same category, I guess. I like it. Uh, We always end the podcast with a random question from a random question generator. And this is the one that came up when I clicked for you. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? The best piece of advice that I've ever received. I know. That's a tough one to dig wow. deep for. That is a tough one, you know. That's uh, one I should have looked up beforehand. Fed it to you earlier. Yeah. Gave you some time to prep. Well, I guess the best piece of advice, uh, stay out of trouble. You know, <laughs> When I was a kid growing up, I guess, but... And we were pretty wholesome kids when I grew up. You know, most kids that played sports, you know, back in my day, you know, we didn't have gangs. We didn't have drugs. You know, we didn't have R-rated movies back then. Nobody locked their doors at night. It was just a different era and a different time. And yeah. honestly, I believe growing up in the 60s and the 50s were the best time in American history to grow up because you didn't have those kind of problems. And, and uh, you know, everything was about high school sports and playing sports and getting a varsity letter. And, you know, that was the big thing back in my day. And. Uh, you know, so I was blessed in that regard and, you know, so, you know, I've never spent a night in jail, so I guess that's pretty good. So. That's good. That's rare for a poker player. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
<laughs> Some of them spent time there, but uh, and I'm sure you passed the same advice off to your son. Stay out of trouble. So yeah, well I hope so. I mean I'm proud of him right now. He's doing good and does mm-hmm. good in school, and he's playing all kinds of sports. And hopefully he'll he'll latch on to one. Right now we've got him playing, you know, basketball and football, or not football, but basketball and baseball and soccer. And mm-hmm. he tried karate and gymnastics. So I, we just want him to do the full gamut, and then finally. Hopefully, find something he, he gets really attached to and likes. And I heard a podcast about that. They, it says you're not the old generation says you're supposed to stick to it and you know write something out when you start it, never quit. But the new generation says try everything. Fe- be afraid. Don't be afraid to fail. You I, know? No, I believe you should try everything and yeah. try all the sports. And you know nowadays, even young kids, you know, ten years old, they're traveling teams in baseball, and it's year round, and you know you don't have time for any other sports if you're. Yeah whether it's a lacrosse player, whether it's a hockey player, whether it's a baseball player, all those people have traveling teams and, you know, you don't get the experience of other sports, you know. And, you know, now obviously kids that, you know, parents want them to be tennis pros and golf pros and they get them starting young and, you know, and the golf courses and going to camps and all that. And, you know, they miss a childhood, I think, you know, a lot of times by being too dedicated to one sport when they're young and so few make it in the pros. Yeah, you just wonder, is it all worth it, you know, and are you better off to have a happy kid that experiences everything? But what so, about poker? Uh, poker, I've not taught him anything about poker. and He's still got 10 years it, before it, he can It's play, funny, right? my nephews and nieces, and, and you know, they have kids, and they're, they're playing poker now a little bit, but but uh, I'm we're trying to keep him away from it. I don't want him to play, and, and, you know, I know how tough it is to make a living playing poker. Now, obviously, once he gets out of college, and if he started playing and likes it, and, you know, I'd help him with it or something, but uh, in truth, you know, I hope he gets into a job and gets a paycheck. And, you know, I, I, you know, I've done very well, you know, as a poker player and as in the poker world. But I know how tough it is, you know, yeah. and I see it out there on tour. And it's tougher and tougher now than it was back when I played. And I played the tour 15 years before there was any big prize money out there. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a different world out there. And it's just really tough there's so many smart kids that have come into poker now. You know, back in my day, you know, the big players were Puggy Pearson and Amarillo Slim. Well, these guys were pool hustlers that found poker games in the back of the pool hall. And they learned they could make more money playing poker, so they started playing poker. But nowadays, all the young guys have played online poker. They've watched the World Poker Tour since they've been little tykes. <laughs> They're all college graduates and, and smart, smart, sharp, sharp guys that catch on quick and understand the power of betting and and – uh, you know, there's so many books and software applications and everything that they can become better players, and they get so good so fast, it's tough out there. It's really tough. Now, obviously, I would never discourage anybody who had a passion for it that wanted to do it, but the advice I give anybody that's even thinking about turning pro is not just because you're a winning poker player. My question to them is, do you love to play poker? Not like to play, love yeah. to play. Because if you don't love to play the game, I don't care if you're a winning player, you're going to be miserable and have a miserable life. If you dread going in the poker rooms and playing, if you dread going on the tournament circuit, if you're not happy, you're not going to be happy in life. And, you know, I was very fortunate my entire career. I loved playing poker. I never got tired of it, ever. And I played seven days a week, 10, 12, 20 hours a day. It didn't matter. And when one game was over, I couldn't wait till the next day to go back and play again. So... I've been fortunate I love to play, you know. Now, I don't love to play now like I used to, Yeah. but now I don't have to grind it out like I used to either. But the first 25 years, you know, I would never get tired of playing poker. I just love the game. I love playing. And 
to me, I think that's a key to being successful as a professional poker player. I just want to follow up on that love because you're 69 now. Um, how long can you do you want to? Well, I don't know. I mean, Doyle's my idol here. I still him. He's playing mm -hmm. fifteen hundred, three thousand mixed games with the best players and in the highest stakes cash TV games in the world. Like, I mean, you know. the guy's eighty five years old or something. It's unbelievable that that he plays in the highest stakes games there are mm -hmm. and has for all these years. And and so, uh, but he tells me, uh, he says, uh, he said, Mike, he said, if I don't play, he said, what am I going to do? You know, mm -hmm. he said, what else am I going to do but bet on the games and play poker? You know, and he knows if he stops doing it, just sits in a rocking chair, he's going to die. Yeah. So it keeps your mind going, and uh, so I'm hoping to keep playing for a while longer, and certainly I hope to keep working for the World Poker Tour a little while longer, and, and uh, I love it. You know, to me, it's not work, and, you know, when you love your job, my dad said, don't ever quit working if you love your job. So uh, hopefully we'll go a few more years. Now, when my son gets to be 10, 11, if he really gets serious about sports, you <laughs> know, I know then. Little League coach comes out. Yeah, I'm not going to want to travel, and you know, it kills me now, and he's just playing peewee ball in these games. <laughs> if I'm on the road when he's got a game, it just drives me crazy because, you know, I love to go into practice. I love yeah. to go into games, and I will never, ever miss one of his games if I'm in town, ever, yeah. as long as I live. And nothing is going to make me happier that when I'm retired is just to follow him and his life and, and <laughs> you know, just watch him grow up, and that's what I'm looking forward to. But, you know, until you get to be at least 10, you know, where you start serious little league or you start other sports, you know, so I got a couple more years yet yeah, to, yeah. to work still, and uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens at the end of that time if I'll keep working or not. Mike, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on, and uh, hopefully everybody gets a copy of Life's a Gamble. I promise you it's a yes. fun, entertaining read. Go buy like, a physical copy on Amazon right now. If, Bring it to the World Series. Michael, sign it for I sure you. will, or anywhere else. And go get the Audible version where you can hear Mike say it himself. Yeah, I promise you, if you like poker, if you like golf, or if you like gambling stories of any kind, you'll love Life's a Gamble. Wow, what a legend, right? If you like those stories, then be sure to check out Mike's book, Life's a Gamble. Follow him on Twitter at Mike Sexton underscore WPT. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Again, email us at pokerstories at cardplayer.com with your review, and you'll be eligible to win a free digital subscription to the magazine. See you next time.